And hello, everybody. Welcome to Paul Lisnick Behind the Curtain. Now, you know that in this part of my world, I often do the arts and theater on the podcast because I live in the world of politics on the TV screen. But today, we're going to actually go to the world of politics and political events because it's history, and it's important history. And joining me to talk about the event, I will tell you in just a moment, is Garrett Graff. It's a name that I've known for many years because I've absolutely loved his work, uh, reading it in Politico and CNN and, and um, the New York Times. Uh, Garrett is currently the director for Cyber Initiatives for the Aspen Institute. And again, you do see his work. He's written some other books. But now I'm so happy he's going to join me to talk about his latest book, which is called Watergate, A New History. Garrett, congratulations on a fine, fine, definitive work. Why, thank you. It was a fascinating and much more complex project to work on than I ever imagined. Well, I could tell that from reading it, and I have read the book. And in fact, I'm going to guess that a lot of interviews that you do, and I know it was my first question, but I'm not going to ask it, which was, why Watergate after 50 years? I mean, there hasn't been a book written about this thing for probably the last 25. What made you turn to that? But I'm not going to ask you that question, because I think it's too common. What I want to ask you is, for folks who think they know Watergate and know everything there is to know about Watergate, Will they learn something new from reading your book? Absolutely. And I, and I think, to me, that was the main reason to write this book, which is that the Watergate story that we think that we know, the one that has been handed down to us by popular culture and, and history over the last 50 years, uh, actually turns out not to be the real story of Watergate. And it's certainly not the story that we now understand with all of the history that we have learned over the last 50 years. Um, and, and what I mean by that is, and you mentioned this just as an aside in your, um, your question there, but I think it's actually an important point, that Watergate is a story that has been sliced and diced in a thousand different ways over the last 50 years. But it has actually been more than a quarter century since the last time anyone sat down to try to write the full story of Watergate start to finish. And that really there are three things that have really dramatically changed our understanding of Watergate and what took place in that period from 1972 to 1974 that have really only come into focus in the last 25 years. Um, and the first of them is the simple identity of Deep Throat. Um, you know, we have this idea in pop culture that uh, uh, Deep Throat was some pro-democracy figure, you know, fighting for truth, justice in the American way, a new Nixon insider disgusted by the corruption that he saw in the Oval Office. Um and what we've now understood is that's not who Deep Throat was at all. That Deep Throat was FBI Deputy Director Mark Felt. And that Mark Felt uh, was actually in many ways a figure familiar to many of us uh, who have had embittered work colleagues who feel that they have been passed over for a promotion that they deserve. And Mark Felt had spent years trying to be the uh, sort of director in waiting um, when J. Edgar Hoover finally left office and then 
just six weeks before the Watergate burglary, J. Edgar Hoover dies. And rather than appoint Mark Felt, director, Richard Nixon brings in an outsider, Pat Gray. And so Mark Felt launches his own personal campaign to sink Pat Gray, the man who he thinks has stolen his job. And he turns out not to really care about Richard Nixon at all. And one of the most fascinating aspects of this is that we come to understand that actually Mark Felt knows a lot of damaging information about Richard Nixon that he never bothers to tell Bob Woodward or Carl Bernstein. And that in many ways, he only is interested in leaking to the press if it hurts Pat Gray. Mm. And so this story really tries to reconceptualize and recontextualize our understanding of Mark Felt and his actions. And before you go on to the second and third things which we've learned over the years, let me just, a little follow-up to to point number one, which is, of course, people whose knowledge of Watergate is the movie, All the President's Men, will remember that the great Hal Holbrook plays Deep Throat, who, as you say, we now know is Mark Felt. And so this is kind of the side, but how is it, is it dangerous, is it risky in society that for those people who, who want to draw their conclusions based on what they've seen on the, on the movie screen, it is so far from what the reality was, as you say, Mark felt, unlike Hal Holbrook in the role, was not driven by sort of saving America. Is that a bad thing for society? Is it dangerous at all? Or is it like, hey, it's the movies, that's what you get? I think in many ways it's the movies and that's what you get. I think that The bigger challenge uh, of all the president's men in the public consciousness is actually less about the the challenge of um, uh, Hal Holbrook and Deep Throat in that, and more the way that it simplifies the Watergate story as this sort of mano-a-mano battle uh, between Woodward and Bernstein and the Nixon uh, White House. Um, and that in many ways, one of the things that I really tried to correct in my telling of Watergate in this book is that Woodward and Bernstein matter, but not in the way that we commonly understood, that they were actually part of a constellation of about a half dozen reporters who helped keep the Watergate story alive from June 1970, June 1972 until March of 1973, which is when the Watergate story finally breaks wide open and achieves its own natural momentum into those explosive summer Watergate hearings that many people um, of a certain age will remember. Like um, and that what the sort of the, the danger of all the president's men as popular culture is the way that it sidelines and writes out of the story a whole host of other reporters who matter, but then also a whole host of other heroes um, in the House, in the Senate, in the special prosecutor's office, people who really do important work to bring Richard Nixon and his corruption to justice.
And you write about this in the book, but I think what people should understand is when we hear the names Bob Woodward now, Carl Bernstein, these guys are, I think Woodward's like 79, but Bernstein just younger than that. I mean, they're basically hitting 80. The bottom line is when, when they were doing this investigative reporting, they're in their 20s. So the Woodward and Bernstein that we know of now is these, I don't know, maybe even people you look up to and, and, and so many reporters look up to, but back then... They were us. They were the young people just, you know, right, just biting down their teeth on some on new skills. Absolutely. And in fact, um, one of the funny aspects of this whole uh, uh, sort of understanding the role of the, that the media actually played in this story in the 1970s is that it was all outsiders who uh who helped drive this story forward because in many ways, the insiders in the Washington press establishment trusted Richard Nixon's denials. I mean, they went to these fancy cocktail parties where Henry Kissinger and other Nixon aides that would, you know, would say, you know, don't, you know, just forget about this Watergate stuff. You know, Nixon wasn't involved at all. And that it was really only the outsiders and the young outsiders who were willing to try to do the heavy investigative legwork to actually disprove uh, th- those denials and show the ties between the burglaries and the dirty tricks and uh, ultimately Nixon's campaign and Nixon's White House. And, and I, I don't want to take you off track of, you said there were three, three points that, that you needed to make, but I want to sort of throw something at you and see if this doesn't guide you into one of the other two points. If it doesn't, just, that's, just take me where you want to take me. But one of the very famous phrases that comes from Watergate, I mean, to today, is through the Trump years, the famous phrase, the cover-up is worse than the crime. We hear this day and night whenever we're talking about a scandal. What I gather from your book is basically you saying, that's not necessarily true in Watergate. The crimes were pretty bad, and there was more than one. Exactly. And that's really, um, that is actually the, the second point that I was, was driving towards in trying to retell this story of Watergate, which is, that what we now understand is that, you know, America thinks of Watergate as the burglary on June 17th, 1972, but that actually Watergate was less an event and more a state of mind. And it is this dark, corrupt, paranoid mindset that bring that Richard Nixon brings into the White House um, and that really serves to encompass a, an umbrella of about a dozen distinct but interrelated scandals that unfold from 1968 right through 1974. Well, I was going to say, Garrett, because you, you, you just mentioned June 1772, and one of the things I learned from the book, everybody thinks that's where this game starts. That is not where this story begins. Exactly. And, and that this is one of the things that has most shifted in the last decade is the way that we now understand that Watergate really begins in the shadow of the 1968 campaign. And it begins with a series of events known as the Chenault Affair. And this is, in many ways, the actual original sin that begets all of the other scandals of the Nixon years. And that in the fall of 1968, Richard Nixon as a presidential candidate, the former vice president running against Hubert Humphrey, the sitting vice president, Nixon and his campaign director, John Mitchell, 
work with this woman um, named Anna Chenault, a Washington socialite, to interfere in the Paris peace talks with the South Vietnamese government as the Johnson administration is trying to bring the Vietnam War to a close. And Nixon tells the South Vietnamese to keep the war going, to reject the peace talks, and that he will give them a better deal if he's elected president. And so these allegations are actually some of the most serious and treacherous allegations we have approaching outright treason against any major political figure in the 20th century. And that Richard Nixon, uh, 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 President Johnson, in the final days of of the 68 campaign, is confronted by Lyndon Johnson over this. And not, Johnson discovers this treachery and confronts Richard Nixon. Nixon denies the whole thing. But as we now understand, uh, he Johnson decides to bury the whole event, classify it and bury it after Richard Nixon's election. But Richard Nixon knows that Johnson knows and sort of Edgar Allan Poe telltale heart style, this secret, this treachery eats away at Richard Nixon and becomes the thing that he needs to protect above all else. And so it drives his overreaction to the Pentagon Papers in the fall, in the summer of 71, because he is afraid that these details of the Chenault affair are going to come public. He orders another burglary that is actually on the Nixon tapes uh, uh, where he wants to break into the Brookings Institution to steal back some papers that he believes are there uh, that document the Chenault affair. And that what we see and what we now understand is that Watergate is really intricately and intimately linked to the Vietnam War and the Pentagon Papers, and that that sort of you have to envision all of these things as an interrelated series of events. And I have to tell you, what I think is absolutely brilliant, I'm going to give you the credit for it, maybe it was an editor, I don't know, but you've structured the book where what you're talking about now is in a section called The Kindling. Um, which, of course, is how a fire starts. And you move on to the match and the brush fire and the firestorm and the inferno. It, it's just brilliant the way you've structured that because it, it's just so true for how things, have, how things develop. Let me clarify one other point with you because you do talk about the fact that, you know, that uh, LBJ reaches out to Nixon. But you write in the book, and I'm kind of wondering whether he did this part to sort of not point fingers at Nixon, but if I read the book right, he didn't just reach out to Nixon. Am I also right? He called Humphrey. He called George Wallace. He updated all of, updated all of them and warned them all to stay out. Was that LBJ trying to just sort of say, I'm not blaming anybody in particular? Yes. Um, you know, the, the, this all unfolds really in the final hours, I mean, literal final hours of the 68 campaign, sort of over the Saturday, Sunday, and Monday leading into the Tuesday election. Um, and that Nixon uh, denies um, having anything to do with this um, to President Johnson, and that by the time Johnson really understands the full scope of the treachery, the election has already happened, and he all of a sudden 
does not want to be undermining the uh, the, the moral legitimacy of Richard Nixon as president-elect of the United States, and that he doesn't think that the country can survive such treachery exposed of an incoming president. And so he decides to bury the whole thing um, and sends these documents off to be classified for 50 years. It's just amazing. And the irony, and you write about the irony, it's really not my, my conclusion, but you sort of look at all this, again, I, I still want to get your third point, so let's see if my crystal ball works again. You sort of write the, about the fact that you say, you know, this was meant to be a completely secret plot. Even LBJ, you know, hides all these records or, or you know, classifies them so they're not going to come out. But you, you say that what was meant to be the most secret plot of all time, basically, now one of the most well-documented plots, and part of that documentation, if you stop the person on the street, they'd say, oh, well, it's the Nixon tapes. I always thought it's the Nixon tapes. And one of the things you clarify in the book is, these might be my words, the Nixon tapes were a mess. Yes, and this is, your, your crystal ball is exactly correct, um, and which leads me to sort of the third thing that I was able to draw upon for this book that is is going to be new to people who uh, even think that they know this story, is all of the investigative files and, and government reports and tape transcripts that have been declassified and released over the, the last few decades. Um, because what we really have seen is this flood of documents um, that have come as people have died, as uh, archives have opened, as files have been declassified, and as scholars have worked to decipher the Nixon tapes. There have been three volumes out um, released in the last 20 years, um, uh, including the most recent, just about seven years ago, of Nixon tape transcripts from his presidency, um, almost 3,000 pages of, uh, of documents uh, and tape transcripts that have come out, plus tens of thousands of new pages of investigative materials that helps paint a broader understanding that this was not, you know, five burglars, yada, 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 Nixon resigned, but actually the full scope of Watergate encompasses uh, charges against 69 people. Fully 69 people were indicted and charged in the scandals growing out of Watergate, um, including, you know, the the Attorney General of the United States, including the Commerce Secretary. I mean, the the two, you know two cabinet officials put on trial together. Um, Mark Felt actually uh, faces his own set of charges separate from the Watergate scandal. Um, and even actually New York Yankees owner George Steinbrenner is <laughs> indicted and ultimately found guilty of campaign finance violations related to the Watergate scandal for his illegal contributions to the Nixon campaign. Um, this was a much bigger, much weirder, much zanier and much darker story than any American really remembers, up to and including that actually a U.S. congressman commits suicide in the midst of this scandal 
uh, when it is found out that he is likely guilty of campaign finance violations relating to Watergate. I think what makes the book so important today, unless you disagree, is your point that Watergate, and you've said this, was not an event, it was a mindset. And you can't help, especially when you do what I do when you cover politics, you know, daily on television, and you can't help but try to apply it to the Trump years and what we've been through and talk about the mindset. And you make it clear in the book that, because some people would say, how does this even happen? And you say, again, the mindset, the arrogance, the blindness of the people who, sur- who surround the president, they're in their own bubble. That's what Nixon was all about. And I'm guessing you would make that. And you follow Trump. You write about Trump. So I don't think I'm taking you off the, off the page here. But it's really going to be a way in the future that we're going to understand what happened in the Trump years. Exactly. They, uh, you know, this is uh, um, I was drawn to this project. Uh, in many ways because of spending the last five to seven years of my life covering uh, the Russian attack on the 2016 election, the the Mueller investigation, the Trump administration, the first impeachment, uh, and trying to think about how our country last confronted a corrupt and criminal president in office and sort of what it took and what worked then and what lessons can we bring forward to our modern political moment? And to me, that was a big part of trying to write this book uh, and, and trying to think through this book is understanding, um, you know, Donald Trump does not appear a single time in the main text of this book, but he really looms over every page of this story. Well, the parallels, again, for anybody that follows the news and is reading your book, I mean, Archibald Cox, the special prosecutor in the Watergate days, gets fired. I mean, Donald Trump, right, wants to get rid of Comey. and You can just see how the powers of the president get exercised in a way where the person in that role attempts to protect themselves by removing those who could challenge their power. Yes, and I think that one of the things that we see then and now is that our country is very uh, poorly equipped to handle a president who comes to office with corruption in mind, that um, we do not have a system that is particularly well-suited to trying to remove and investigate a president once they are in office. Um, And and that actually, in many ways, the most important thing for our system is keeping anyone with those desires far from the Oval Office in the first place. I want to talk about a couple of names. John Dean, and I want to be careful in how I do this. John follows me on Twitter. So my guess is when I talk about this interview or whatever, when we, when we tweet it, uh, he may very well go check this out. I hope he does. And as you and I are talking now, Garrett, there is a, uh, a special that's going to air on CNN, but it's, it's going to be in a week or so. So this, this interview is going to post after that show airs. And, it's, and I'm sure, I doubt you've seen the special. I haven't. And, and, and it, 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 the commercial board is John Dean kind of sitting in a chair saying, you know, I was part of Watergate, and I realized that if I didn't make this cover-up work, I was going to prison. I had to make this work. 
Can you talk about the role of John Dean and what you think he's likely to say when this special does air? Because clearly he wants to make himself look like he didn't play a role in this thing that was negative. Yeah, John Dean ends up, you know, by almost any measure, one of the most fascinating characters of this entire story. Um, And some of that has to do with his story arc is one that is very familiar to, you know, almost anyone who has spent any time in Washington. You know, he arrives in the, the, the capital, uh, with a lot of ambition and not a lot of integrity. Um, and is sort of power hungry, but power agnostic, um, you know, and so he becomes very quickly seduced by the trappings of working in the White House. And what we come to see uh, is that he is a very enthusiastic initial participant in the cover-up um, and in, in many ways is one of the original architects of the cover-up. Um, except that he also uh, becomes the sort of the first to realize how deep into the cover-up they have got. Um, and that in the spring of 1972, in 1973, he finally, you know, and, and this is a scene in his memoir that I, you know, I follow in, in my book um, as well, that he, you know, takes down the federal code uh, and and starts to read the statue dealing with obstruction of justice and realizes that he is effectively uh, already guilty of everything that has uh, that that obstruction of justice calls for, and so he becomes the first to to turn um, and begin to cooperate with prosecutors. And that this is uh, in many ways, the signal moment where Watergate begins to turn Um, and and that it is his cooperation with prosecutors. And then ultimately his uh, Senate testimony before the Irvin committee in the summer of 1973 that uh, gives, America the first picture of the corruption that was taking place inside the the Nixon White House. And this next figure I want to ask you about is actually a question I couldn't have even asked you if you go back several weeks in time, because this wouldn't have been a a newsy question to ask. But Martha Mitchell, of course, who is a larger-than-life figure. I I remember her. I mean, she was that in life. And and, and, uh, uh, But here, so she's the wife of John Mitchell, and we we learn in your book that this may not have been the best marriage as, as time goes on. But here's the question, and if anybody else has asked you this, I'd be curious to know. I thought, who is it one could compare Martha Mitchell with today in this larger-than-life figure? And tell me if I'm off base, but Ginny Thomas is where my mind goes with regard to the influence, the, the growing larger-than-life figure. Is that an off-the-base comparison? And talk about why Martha Mitchell, Martha Mitchell was indeed larger-than-life. Yeah, um, Ginny, Ginny Thomas, Mitchell, by the way, being the wife of Clarence Thomas, yeah, uh, U.S. Supreme Court Justice, for, for listeners who don't make that connection, who, of course, we're learning more and more, had tried to influence uh, the outcome of the election. Yeah, um, Martha Mitchell uh, is, 
one of the most tragic figures of the the Watergate story um, in in many ways. She is, as you said, the the wife of um, uh, the the wife of campaign manager, then attorney general, then campaign manager again, uh, John Mitchell. Um, she comes to Washington in 1969. Uh, this loud, outspoken, uh, brash. Uh, woman, the the mouth of the South, native of Pine Bluff, Arkansas, and that she becomes in many ways, I think, the first political pundit, uh, you know, conservative political pundit in American life, that she um, is the forerunner of of Rush Limbaugh, of of Sarah Palin, and that she becomes this hugely in-demand public speaker um, for the um, for the Republican Party by the spring of 1972. She is in in fact the second most in-demand public speaker on the Republican circuit after the president himself, after Richard Nixon himself, and that she. Uh, it has some serious mental health issues. She has a serious problem with alcohol and that she, um, in the wake of the Watergate burglary, um, her always strained marriage with John Mitchell, um, uh, unravels very quickly. Um, John Mitchell finds out about the burglary there in California and she is left behind by him uh, because he doesn't want her to see the news that James McCord has been arrested as part of the burglary. James McCord, the security director of the Nixon campaign, um, and someone that Martha Mitchell will immediately recognize as one of her former bodyguards on the campaign. And so he leaves her in California under guard, and uh, she's effectively held captive there for the week after the Watergate burglary. Um, at one point, she uh, she tries to call for help to a reporter named Helen Thomas. Um, her bodyguard wrestles the phone from her, rips it out of the wall, um, holds her down, and shoots her up with a tranquilizer. Um, and their marriage unravels very quickly, um, as, as you might imagine, from there. Uh, and uh, they are ultimately divorced um, amid Watergate um, as um, John Mitchell faces his own criminal charges. Um, and she dies very quickly after the end of Watergate in 1976. And this becomes... Uh, sort of through all of this, um, she is forgotten very quickly um, and that it's only been within the last sort of five or seven years that people have tried to bring her back to the center of Watergate. Um, I think the the Ginny Thomas uh, comparison you make is an interesting one in terms of the sort of behind the scenes influence in the Republican Party. I think where the analogy falls apart, um, 
uh, as I think you would would agree, is that Martha Mitchell uh, ultimately turns on Richard Nixon and her husband, John Mitchell, um, in, in a way that Ginny Thomas is, uh, you know, sort of first and foremost a loyal servant of the cause. I, I agree completely. So it's not the perfect analogy, but it just struck me, maybe because Ginny Thomas is so much in the news. I have two other things I want to ask you about before I, we, we run out of our time. And one, of course, is, as we already now for the, the hearings, uh, the January 6th hearings and all that those will put forth, of course, you can't help when you're reading your book, Watergate, you can't help but think of the Sam Irvin hearings and those hearings that went on. So a two-part question. Number one, um, the Sam Urban hearings made a huge difference back then because, first of all, you didn't have the cable news chatter at night to uh, either you know to tear things apart before ever, before it ever started or do the kind of analysis we're we're going to get this time around. And then, secondly, um, there's there's so much out there, uh, you know, about all of this already. Do you think that these hearings even make a difference? Are we in a time and a place that that difference can't be made? We also don't have the Barry Goldwaters. This, in this period of time that you had in the 1970s, who essentially could go to Nixon and say, you're resigning because you're going to get impeached. Yeah, I, I think it's, it, uh, it is too soon to tell. Um, you know, the January 6th hearings, um, how, how they might ultimately change public opinion. You know, I think their challenge... Um, and again, to, to your point, we're recording this before the first hearings um, right. uh, actually air, uh, is that uh, as far as we know, they don't have their John D. They don't have the sort of uh, intimately involved conspirator who now wants to lay out the whole plot. Um, and that you... you you need someone like that to help galvanize public attention and underscore the level of uh, uh, of criminality and corruption at the heart of the enterprise. Um, and, and I think leaving aside the changes in the media environment, leaving aside the changes in the political environment, um, that to me is the thing that I will be sort of most looking for in the hearing is, you know, do they have sort of that single cooperating witness who is uh, willing and able to help show the American people the full scope of what took place? I think you're exactly right. And I think I'll not be because that person could be there. We just may not know right now. Correct. So we'll see how that plays out. Finally, I've always been fascinated by Nixon, as many have, because of the way he, in my view, but I want to get your view, the way he seemed to rehabilitate his image by the time of his death. And you actually end the book with a, with a statement from Nixon, which I think is, it, just, it, it, it just clarifies everything, where Nixon in an interview says, a man is not finished when he is defeated. He's finished when he quits. Nixon never did quit in terms of trying to rehabilitate his image and go down in history as a far better president than maybe he looked like in the 70s. Exactly. And, and that this is, uh, you know, Nixon in many ways, I think, is one of the most fascinating psychological portraits or, or characters that we have in, in modern political history. Um, and it's because of this incredible mix 
of light and dark and, and paranoia and optimism that drives really his every move for uh, for decades in, in public life. I mean, this is someone who, by almost any measure, would be one of the most consequential presidents of the 20th century. I mean, he was uh, uh, on the national Republican presidential ticket five times, a record uh, only equaled by FDR on, uh, on the Democratic side. Um, he was on the cover of Time magazine 55 times more than any other human in history at a time when the covers of news weeklies really helped dominate and drive American uh, conversation. He you know, brought detente with the Soviet Union. He reopened, uh, he reopened relations with China. He was the first president to visit Moscow, the first president to visit uh, Beijing, the first president to visit a communist bloc country in the Cold War. He uh, started uh, the he started OSHA. He started the EPA. He signed Title IX. He declared the war on cancer. He brought more than a thousand women into the middle management of the federal government and the first female military aides to the White House. Um, you know, he escalated and wound down the Vietnam War. Um, and yet all of that um, is today shorthanded by the single word Watergate. And that this man who so wanted greatness and came so close to achieving it, um, ultimately sort of couldn't get out of his own way um, and sinks his own political career. I had three missions, purposes, for the interview. One was that your book, Watergate, A New History, is indeed the definitive account. I think you've, you've illustrated that. And just reading it and showing how history is not what we expected it to be is the proof of that. But I also wanted to show our, our listeners that this book needs to be read not just to understand correctly the history of Watergate, but so, so that we can actually use it as a uh, an eyeglass, if you will, towards current events, things we've been living through, and also for a look to the future, because I don't know that anybody ever thought we were going to lose our democracy back in the 70s, but they do think that now, and I think this book kind of fits all those pieces of the look back, the look forward, and a lesson. It, it, would you agree that that's part of what, what you want us to get out of it, not just the past, but a look at the future? Exactly. I think that in many ways, Watergate is a story of how the American system works um, and the delicate ballet and dance that it takes with our system of checks and balances to bring, uh, to, to preserve American democracy, to, to carry American democracy forward to a new generation. Um, and it shows that it's really hard and it requires um, you know, moral leadership and bravery and heroism from a whole host of different players and institutions. Um, and I think it, it is impossible to read a book like this without looking at um, uh, our modern times and wonder whether we have that same ability to preserve American democracy for the next generation. 
The book is Watergate, A New History. Garrett Graff, I congratulate you again. Listen, I've written a bunch of books, but if they go over 200 pages, I'm exhausted. So uh, this is just an amazing feat. Uh, and uh, kudos, too, on your, your last best It may not be your last one, but the best-selling book you wrote, The Only Plane in the Sky, another important, important work. So I continue to follow your career. I can't wait for the next thing you tackle. Maybe I'll ask you that. Do you know what the next, next thing you tackle is? Uh, believe it or not, I am actually, my next book, um, most of what I write about is, is the intersection of, of politics and, and national security and technology. Um, and uh, I wrote a, a book uh, um, a while back about the U.S. government's secret plans uh, for doomsday, the, the sort of all of the weird things that would happen during and after a nuclear attack, um, a book called uh, Raven Rock. Um, and that uh, I'm actually now working on a, a similar project uh, that dives into the U.S. government's hunt for UFOs over the last 75 years and all of sort of the weird stories of how that unfolded and what uh, both, both the sort of secret military hunt for UFOs and then uh, NASA's more overt search for extraterrestrial life. I love that. Once again, great timing, because it's been back in the news lately, right, as we first have our, our first hearings on that. Well, please, promise you'll come back and talk to me when that book comes out, because it's going to be amazing. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. All right, Garrett Graff, the book is Watergate, A New History, available on Amazon or wherever better books are sold. Garrett, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for chatting. Well, if you want to know more about what we've talked about here, follow me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Paul Lisnick. That's P-A-U-L-L-I-S-N-E-K. And I'd love to hear your comments or topic suggestions for future podcasts. You can also go to my website, paullisnick.tv. And hey, don't forget to hit subscribe on WGN Plus and iTunes. And tune in each week to hear more Insider Scoop coming to you from Behind the Curtain.